Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 187, Rumbly Grumbly. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can find out more from the Knitting Out Loud catalog at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus Magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can see more of Knit Circus Magazine at www.knitcircus.com. Also, Scribe Tutor, the online writing tutor offering personalized and convenient writing help for all ages. You can see more at scribetutor.com. Well, hello. You may wonder why this episode is called Rumbly Grumbly, and I will tell you, it is because I have been strangely hungry for the last week and a half. I don't know what it is. I am not pregnant. Not an option. But I, I don't know. Is that what happens in the fall, in normal places where it gets really cold? It's still in the 80s here. It's supposed to cool off. Tuesday, we're supposed to drop back down to the 70s and stay there and get colder, I hope. But, you know, we don't really have trees to speak of. You know, not I mean, not trees with big leaves that change color. We have big trees. We have mesquite trees and we have Palo Verde trees and stuff. So it's a little hard to judge time of year by looking out the window as it were and uh and so i'm wondering you know am i going is my body actually going into that kind of hibernation phase where all you really want is a thick stew and a lot of potatoes i don't know but my stomach will not stop growling you may hear it it is quite vociferous at times so i don't know i don't know but i am sitting with my pathetic little cup of tea here at the microphone I followed instructions. I followed instructions from comments on the show notes last week. And um, the tea is still, you know, mediocre. It's just not. You know, uh, when I was staying with Brenda and Tanya, their tea was stunning. And I asked what it was. And it turned out that it was just, I say just in quotation marks, co-op tea. That uh, since the last time I'd spent a significant amount of time in England, uh, co-op, national, it's like a chain of markets i guess um co-op the mm, how to explain market (laughs) things to buy in market uh market brand kind of like generic brands that we'd get in the united states um but ever so much better the tea was really wonderful and the the other thing which i think i mentioned before fair trade dark chocolate was far and away the best dark chocolate I found. I was I was really pleasantly surprised. Not to say that all chocolate in England isn't great, because I, I really have not met a bad piece of chocolate in England, but the fair trade dark chocolate, I'm not a dark chocolate fan, and the fair trade dark chocolate was awesome. So if you're planning a trip and heading towards the UK, Please do keep your eyes out for a co-op first, all going to a good place, and then um, the fair trade stuff. So my cup of tea isn't great, 
but it's better than nothing. And my throat's been very scratchy. I haven't actually gotten sick, but I have been sick-ish since getting back off and on. I don't know if it's still just the time change. I tend to be fairly susceptible to time change issues, but who knows? It could just be that the wind has been kicking up here and whatever is in the air is bugging me. I'm not sure. So, Scribe Tutor news, aside from just the general tutorial stuff, uh, my partner in crime is going to be at the NCTE NWP conference coming up shortly. That's the National Council for Teachers of English conference. And part of that, or a different thing that's happening concurrently, is National Writing Project. I was a National Writing Project fellow, uh, oh my goodness, three and a half years ago. And... um, and I think she was a fellow four or five years ago. She has been working with them for a while. Anyway, long story short, my other half will be, also named Heather, interestingly, will be at these conferences. If you will be at either of these conferences, keep your eyes open for a 5859-ish tall redhead with a vocabulary like unto an encyclopedia. She will have scribe tutor bookmarks available. They will be with her and she'll be passing those out because we're we're starting not only to do the tutoring kids, but in year two, next year, we are planning on expanding into doing um, draft reviews for schools and school districts. For those of you who are teachers, you know that one of the things that is most time consuming and the thing that you as an English teacher really never have enough time to do is work with the kids individually on their drafts. And we're, we're working towards providing that kind of support for schools, like a site license where we are um, the, the tutors of record for the classes. We wouldn't be doing any of the grading um, because that has to be, you know, the, the teacher on, on staff doing that. And, um, and we wouldn't actually even be looking at final drafts. We'd be working on outline stages and, and um, drafting stages. So that is a very exciting thing that's about to happen. And... Uh, we're still working on getting licensed with homeschools and charter schools around the country. So I know our longtime listener and friend of the show, Judith, had contacted me about an online charter school in her area. If there are others that you know of that you are interested in uh, having us work with, please contact me. Along with that, and NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, NANO. W-R-I-M-O dot org. Uh, we are hosting nightly, at least weeknightly so far, online writing salons where anyone, you don't have to be a NaNoWriMo person, but anyone who wants to take some time to you know, kind of focus on your writing and get rid of extraneous crazies and um, have some fun so you know you don't just sit in a room writing by yourself because that can get kind of down after a while. We provide our online classroom for these online salons. They've been going very well so far. Uh, More and more people are joining in. And uh, Heather, the other, and I were speaking. And we think we're going to try and keep doing these at least once a week throughout the year where we just provide a kind of a safe, supportive, fun environment for people to come and write. Because a lot of us want to write, but... Finding the time is one thing, and if you, you know if you have an appointment, that makes it easier. But also, I think um, 
feeling like you can is also sometimes quite difficult. And for, for those people, you know, we kind of wanted to provide the safe space, but also kind of some prompting. And obviously, if you want to just come and write and not do whatever the prompt is for that night, that's fine too. We are very egalitarian about our writing. So um, I will keep you posted on times and dates and, and things like that once we get, uh, get our schedules coordinated. But very excited about that. And, uh, and all of that stuff's really good. NaNoWriMo's going well. I am on track with my, my word count, although I haven't updated it this weekend but um but that's all good and and yay oh uh yay bread for for those of you who have been listening for a while you know that i had to start eating gluten-free a little uh over a year ago and that that is you know it makes the bread thing a little less shall we say crusty and good smelling <laughs> but uh but good news on that friend uh, you may recall that probably, oh my gosh, uh, two years ago, Don uh, from, Crochet Compul- uh, from Crochet Compulsive sent in the uh, How to Make Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day link, and that I started cooking out of that cookbook and was uh, just blown away. It's ever so marvelous. And they released a second book, which includes a gluten-free section. Now, because these people are good people, and because... Uh, their book is like something around close to 30 bucks, which I don't have right now. I'm, I can't say enough about how fabulous they are because they published the basic, you know, the, the bare bones recipe for their, uh, for their gluten-free bread on their website. So this, you know, it doesn't have any of the bells and whistles and it is actually, in fact, missing some, uh, some information. However, I have been able to make two loaves of really um, completely respectable uh, French bed uh, boules, um, you know, the kind of flattened out balls, like a mushroom dome top. Oh my gosh. I had tartine for breakfast, toasted, thinly sliced toasted French bread with uh, a little bit of butter, a little bit, a little bit, and some amazing boysenberry, uh, really tart and sweet boysenberry jam that my husband got somewhere. I don't know where. We'll probably never be able to replicate it again. But it reminded me, between my cup of tea and the tartine, it reminded me of this wonderful restaurant in New York that is gone. Last time I went, it was gone. It was called Le Dugamin. It was down off of uh, Sheridan Square in the village, just off of 7th Avenue. And it was this little Parisian cafe. And, you know, they served coffee in a bowl the size of your head. Their cafe au lait was really cafe au lait. Their hot chocolate had no sugar in it. It was so wonderful. And the last time I went, it was gone. But but it lives on in my tartine. And I was saddened to remember them and miss them so. But, you know, heartened because because at least I could eat something that tasted like it. <gasps> I'm so bad. That's a horrible thing to say. Anyway, it was good. Very, very good. So if you two are uh, gluten challenged, take a look at the website. I will provide a link in the show notes. And if you are hosting gluten challenged people at your Thanksgiving, I will also post a link 
to a website that has some really good Thanksgiving recipes uh, that shouldn't horrify everyone. You know, the nice thing about, unlike being intolerant of corn, which is in absolutely everything, flour is only in mostly everything, and it is very possible to cook a respectable cornbread and make crazy good cornbread stuffing that has no flour in it. And, um, and you know, you don't even have to say anything. No one will ever know that there's no wheat flour in the gravy. It's very easy to get around. Uh, so that's good. That's really good. We have uh, three new books that are going up on the show notes poll. Sons and Lovers, Canterbury Tales, which I've told you I'm saving. And there's a reason for that which I will tell you soon. And Middlemarch. Middlemarch has been on my list for a while. And you know, there's, oh, there's another one that people kept talking about. Uh, the one that Brenda recorded, Age of Innocence. I'll put all of these back up onto the poll. And um, you let me know. Uh, I have decided that we are, in fact, going to do Scrooge right after we finish this because I am part of a blog hop and I can tell you more about it now. An old friend of mine from high school and middle school who I think I mentioned in the last podcast, she has a site called Polywog Baby. She does um, nursing supplies for uh, mothers who have infants with acid reflux, which we did. And sadly, she was not in business at the time, which is really unfortunate because we could have used her her help. Um She's hosting a blog hop. It is a Dickens of a Christmas. And we will be providing, we, the the bloggers that are involved in this, will be providing you with links over a period of time to everything you need to make a fabulous Dickensian Christmas feast. We will have knitting patterns. We will have haberdasher patterns. We will have food recipes. We will have drink recipes. We will have everything that says Victorian Christmas available to you through our linked up blogs. There's a, a, a little linky program that will take you from one, one to the next and, uh, and we'll give you everything you need, including something to listen to. And that will be A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So you, Craftlet listeners, will find that you have special surprise bonus episodes coming to you in late November, early December. Those will not be the regular craftlet episodes but they will be um i mean you'll still hear the opening music and you'll still still hear me um but i won't be doing any extra talk i'll just be opening and giving you the information on the book so uh that's going to be at least two maybe three podcasts to get all the way through Christmas Carol, because, you know, like all good classics, you think you know the whole thing, but maybe not so much. You know, there's extra stuff that wasn't in any of the movie versions. I had a really good time listening to the book over the weekend, so that was fun. I've also been listening to Mark Twain's Joan of Arc. It is fascinating. Uh, I don't know enough about you know, the real story or, you know, I've never seen any movies on Joan of Arc. I've never read anything about her beyond she had a paper doll in my great women of history paper doll book. Um, but I can see why Mark Twain was so enamored of his version of this book. It's, it is in, it is both very similar to his other writing and completely different at the same time. 
It is interesting stuff. And I'm only about halfway through right now, but it's the same reader and he does a lovely job, really a lovely job with, uh, with the Joan of Arc story. So just wanted to let you know that it's on LibriVox and it's, it's fascinating listening. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, the only other things I have to announce to you are these. On Ravelry, I've been having a conversation with Magic Knitter. That is her, her handle. Her real name is Leah. And she has a new thing that she's working up, which I thought was just kind of brilliant. It is an online set of, of linked pages, patterns, stories, and blog. And what it is, is it's fiber fiction, where it's a short story with a matching pattern. How cool is that? So I have a link to that for you, but she's also, you know, looking for submissions and you are a bunch of crafty people. So far, they're knitting patterns. You would have to contact her if you had other kinds of recipes that you might be interested in submitting to her, knitting or crochet or something like that. But, um, but right now there's, there's a bunch of patterns up in a, a couple of stories and it looks like a lot of fun. So take a look. I will be, as soon as I am done with my blasted Madame Defarge thing, I will be providing a story and a pattern to her as well. So I'm working on that. And the only other thing I have for you is uh, Judith, once again, longtime listener and friend of the show. She hooked me up with the Quilt Rat. Now, the Quilt Rat is actually Jill. She is a stunning quilter but she's also someone who was kind of doing zentangle kinds of things that i've talked about a couple times now uh before she actually knew that that's what she was doing so i i went to her website and i saw that she made it into a new book by uh, a zen certified zentangle instructor now this is a, a woman who has um she's released three three four books Suzanne McNeil she's released three or four books on zentangling and and how to and she just released a new one called inspired by zentangle fabric arts quilting and embroidery I'm gonna put up a link to Suzanne McNeil's blog I'm gonna put up a link to Jill's blog the quilt rep blog I'm also gonna put up a link to a YouTube video for whatever reason I, I can't uh, embed this one in the show notes but but uh Suzanne McNeil walks you through her book and, and shows you her stuff. And um, and it's it's going to make you itch to go out and quilt something and embroider a bit. Even I, even I who loathe and despise embroidering. I love embroidery. I loathe embroidering. Uh, I'm tempted, sorely tempted. And uh, and the, the Zentangle stuff, I know I'm late to the party on this, and, and many of you have already heard of this stuff, but seeing it done so well on fabric or with fabric on and with fabric it's uh kind of awe-inspiring because the stuff is just so bloody gorgeous so take a look at the quilt right quilt rats website and uh and and let her know I sent you. She's she's. I've been emailing back and forth with her. She's just the loveliest thing, and um, and both of us are quite impressed with fabricy, fibery people and how wonderful we all are. So everybody, just give yourself a big old pat on the back for being crafty and fabulous. 
<laughs> because I'm not the only one who thinks so. Oh, and all of that also led me, you know, how you kind of hyperlink your way around the web and suck up a lot of time. Uh, it also led me to the Beezink Studio. This is Sandy Steen Bartholomew's website, and she is another Zentangle teacher and publisher, and she's the one, or she's one of the ones anyway, who has uh, lacquered a bathroom floor white and then Zentangled over it with, um, I think it was permanent paint pens. And it is stunning. I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing that were you in the bathroom, you might never come out because you'd actually, when you were finished with whatever else you needed to do, you would just sit there on the floor, crawling around, examining how gorgeous the Zentangles are. It's, uh, it's kind of cool. So I'm going to put up a link to her, her studio as well. Plus, she has a really cute website. It's, it's very adorable. So cute things to look at. And now we get to Mark Twain. I got email last week from Barbara, who was on the trip, <laughs> saying, Hemingway, you're hurting me enough with Twain, and now you want to do Hemingway? Okay, so Hemingway's off the table. We will not. We won't. We won't do Hemingway. I was. I did not like Hemingway very much at all. Uh, I liked some of his short stories because I could appreciate kind of the specificity of his writing. But I grew to like his. What was it? The Sun Also Rises. I think that's the one I liked with Jake. I think. Eh, doesn't matter. Uh, but we won't. We won't be doing that. But we are going to do Christmas Carol and probably a couple other short stories on our way to the new year and then by then you know enough of you will have had time to vote that we can actually pick a new book and let's see twain twain this week i am loading you with chapters we've got 34 35 36 37 and 38 and that takes us through one entire episode in uh, the life of the boss and and the king. When last we left them, <laughs> uh, the boss was regaling uh, the people who he had fixed up this this four dollar feast for. Uh, he was regaling them with tales of how wealthy he was and how lucky he was. And of course, he's been saying all these things about the king that you know he's he's trying to do it to protect them so that if the king says something really ridiculously stupid, people don't pay him any mind this is all as you could have probably predicted and probably did this is all going to come around to bite him on the tush right now so you you are going to watch them get into desperate states this is uh this last section is the last big uh anti-slavery push he has he has more anti things of his age pushes to come but this is this is the last big anti-slavery one and uh you know listening to to dickens and listening to this at the same time it it struck me there are there are moments in what is coming to you today that made me tear up and i'm i'm very easily terrified huh how's that i am very easily terrified at sentimental things and more so since I've had children I was not like this before I had children and I don't think it's just hormonal I think well yeah it probably is hormonal but you know really things your perspective does change as soon as these little beasties pop out of you so it's 
and I know it's changed for my husband too. He's a complete softy. It's so I guess it's not just hormones, is it? Hmm. Or maybe different hormones are coursing through you once you've got these little guys that you're supposed to take care of. Anyway, whatever it is, there are some blatantly sentimental portions of what's coming and they absolutely make me tear up. And I think, uh, you know, ideally, that's the response Twain wanted. At the same time, you need to remember that the audience that he's writing for is one that watches and enjoys melodramas. Um, there's, there's lots of theater from this time period. There's oh, Mrs. Warren's profession. And oh, there's just, there's just all sorts of stuff that's going on you know, right here in the, in the late 1800s that's um, contrived and very sentimental. And you get some of the, I can't pay the rent. You must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. You must pay the rent. I'll pay the rent. You know, you, you get a lot of these kind of deus ex machina, uh, miraculous savings at the last second, you know, the 11th hour kind of things. Uh, and you're going to get some of that in, in this last section, too. Now, the, the other thing that you'll hear happening, if you've ever read, I always go back to this, and I'm sorry, because I haven't done it on the podcast, honestly, because I haven't figured out how. I should probably talk to Juliet Forgotten Classics about how she did uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, because she read that on her, on her show. Um, but the, the last third of... Huck Finn is problematic for lots of reasons. Uh, he falls into slapstick and melodrama with Jim. He brings Tom Sawyer back, which is always a bad idea. Um, they they wind up doing kind of you know almost a penny dreadful. It's it's almost farcical how some of the end of Huck Finn is constructed, and you do get some of that here. I. I, I have a couple of different suspicions about why this happens. It could be that Mark Twain realizes that, like Shakespeare, had to throw in body jokes from time to time to keep the groundlings happy. Twain can only go for so long in serious, hardcore satire before he has to throw something to the masses. And that it is very possible that that's one of the reasons why he does this. It is also very possible that he just gets lost having a good time telling a funny story. But... He, he can't he can't save himself from himself. He is too good a writer and he is too smart a man. And so you will notice some things in today's chunk of chapters. Uh, he's spent a lot of time insulting 6th century Britain and and using it as a, a setting for some fairly sharp political satire, not just on Britain, but on very specific things that were happening in the United States. And it, it certainly, again, if you don't understand irony or you don't understand satire, you could misunderstand the tools that he's using and think and leave thinking that his, his point is much more simplistic. And I mean that as an insult. And, you know, his, his point is not simplistic and it's going to become less and less simplistic as we cruise towards the end of this book. The thing that I think is interesting, and you, you, this is the thing with Twain, is you have to kind of work your way up to the end where you really get hit with what his point is. You have to slog through the rest of it. The, the thing that I think is really interesting in, in these final chapters is 
you know, he's, he's made all these cracks against Arthur and how, you know, these, these high and mighty and refined royals, you know, he makes all the jokes about them, uh, leading the military and what a mistake that is. And so he contrives this whole way of getting them to think that they're the most important people in the army, but really he's got his West Pointers running things. So, you know, the nobility is useless or royalty is useless or Arthur is ineffectual, but you have these moments of, of kind of poignancy in Arthur. There's the, the thing that he said a few chapters back, quite a few chapters back um, about realizing that Guinevere was more into Lancelot than into him and it was a very sad kind of quiet moment because really he didn't he didn't have any any recourse to address or redress that that problem well here we've got another section with Arthur and and the the section has every opportunity to once again make an ass out of Arthur and and it doesn't happen I mean there are moments there are moments that are funny but they're kind of funny because of the the situation, not because Arthur is being ridiculed. And if if he were really going after nobility or royalty, specifically royalty in, in this situation, he would have gone a lot farther and he wouldn't do what he does in these chapters. Arthur Arthur is just too good a piece of source material to defile that way and Twain doesn't he he you know as we're heading towards the end of the book Arthur remains Arthur and it's kind of cool it's just one of those things that I really love about Twain that you know if you if you listen and you watch what he's doing he's a softy and as frustrated as he might be with the politics of his day, and certainly with, with slavery specifically, he's a softy. He's a softy when it comes to women. As much fun as he makes of Sandy in the beginning, you just wait as we come towards the end. It's fascinating stuff. I love the end of this book. You can tell, can't you? So I am going to play you now, back to back, straight through with nothing else in it because you just don't need it. These are just really tight, focused chapters. Chapters 34, 35, 36, 37, and 38 of... A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 34. The Yankee and the King Sold as Slaves. Well... What had I better do? Nothing in a hurry, sure. I must get up a diversion, anything to employ me while I could think, and while these poor fellows could have a chance to come to life again. There sat Marco, petrified in the act of trying to get the hang of his miller gun, turned to stone, just in the attitude he was in when my pile-driver fell, the toy still gripped in his unconscious fingers. So I took it from him and proposed to explain its mystery. Mystery! A simple little thing like that, and yet it was mysterious enough for that race and that age. I never saw such an awkward people with machinery. You see, they were totally unused to it. The miller gun was a little double-barreled tube of toughened glass with a neat little trick of a spring to it, which upon pressure would let a shot escape. But the shot wouldn't hurt anybody. It would only drop into your hand. In the gun were two sizes, wee mustard-seed shot, and another sort that were several times larger. 
They were money. The mustard seed shot represented mill rays, the larger ones mills. So the gun was a purse, and very handy, too. You could pay out money in the dark with it, with accuracy, and you could carry it in your mouth, or in your vest pocket, if you had one. I made them of several sizes, one size so large it would carry the equivalent of a dollar. Using shot for money was a good thing for the government, the metal cost nothing, and the money couldn't be counterfeited, for I was the only person in the kingdom who knew how to manage a shot tower. Paying the shot soon came to be a common phrase. Yes, and I knew it would still be passing men's lips away down in the nineteenth century, yet none would suspect how and when it originated. The king joined us about this time, mightily refreshed by his nap, and feeling good. Anything could make me nervous now. I was so uneasy, for our lives were in danger, and so it worried me to detect a complacent something in the king's eye, which seemed to indicate that he had been loading himself up for a performance of some kind or other. Confound it, why must he go and choose such a time as this? I was right. He began, straight off, in the most innocently artful and transparent and lubberly way, to lead up to the subject of agriculture. The cold sweat broke out all over me. I wanted to whisper in his ear, "'Man, we are in awful danger. Every moment is worth a principality till we get back these men's confidence. Don't waste any of this golden time.' But of course I couldn't do it. Whisper to him? It would look as if we were conspiring. So I had to sit there and look calm and pleasant while the king stood over that dynamite mine and mooned along about his damned onions and things. At first the tumult of my own thoughts, summoned by the danger signal and swarming to the rescue from every quarter of my skull, kept up such a hurrah and confusion and fifing and drumming that I couldn't take in a word. But presently, when my mob of gathering plans began to crystallize and fall into position and form a line of battle, a sort of order and quiet ensued, and I caught the boom of the king's batteries, as if out of remote distance. "'Were not the best way, methinks, albeit it is not to be denied that authorities differ as concerning this point, some contending that the onion is but an unwholesome berry when stricken early from the tree.' The audience showed signs of life, and sought each other's eyes in a surprised and troubled way. While as others do yet maintain, with much show of reason, that this is not of necessity the case, instancing that plums and other like cereals do be always dug in the unripe state. The audience exhibited distinct distress, yes, and also fear. Yet are they clearly wholesome, the more especially when one doth assuage the asperities of their nature by admixture of the tranquilizing juice of the wayward cabbage. The wild light of terror began to glow in these men's eyes, and one of them muttered, These be errors, every one. God hath surely smitten the mind of this farmer. I was in miserable apprehension. I sat upon thorns. And further instancing the known truth that in the case of animals, the young, which may be called the green fruit of the creature, is the better, all confessing that when a goat is ripe, his fur doth heat and soar endgame his flesh, the which defect, taken in connection with his several rancid habits, and fulsome appetites, and godless attitudes of mind, and bilious quality of morals, they rose and went for him. 
with a fierce shout, "'The one would betray us, the other is mad. Kill them! Kill them!' They flung themselves upon us. What joy flamed up in the king's eye! He might be lame in agriculture, but this kind of thing was just in his line. He had been fasting long. He was hungry for a fight. He hit the blacksmith a crack under the jaw that lifted him clear off his feet and stretched him flat on his back. "'St. George for prison!' and he downed the wheelwright. The mason was big, but I laid him out like nothing. The three gathered themselves up and came again, went down again, came again, and kept on repeating this with native British pluck until they were battered to jelly, reeling with exhaustion, and so blind that they couldn't tell us from each other. And yet they kept right on, hammering away with what might was left in them, hammering each other, for we stepped aside and looked on while they rolled and struggled and gouged and pounded and bit with the strict and wordless attention to business of so many bulldogs. We looked on without apprehension, for they were fast getting past ability to go for help against us, and the arena was far enough from the public road to be safe from intrusion. Well, while they were gradually playing out, it suddenly occurred to me to wonder what had become of Marco. I looked around. He was nowhere to be seen. Oh, but this was ominous. I pulled the king's sleeve, and we glided away and rushed for the hut. No Marco there. No Phyllis there. They had gone to the road for help, sure. I told the king to give his heels wings, and I would explain later. We made good time across the open ground, and as we darted into the shelter of the wood, I glanced back and saw a mob of excited peasants swarm into view, with Marco and his wife at their head. They were making a world of noise, but that couldn't hurt anybody. The wood was dense, and as soon as we were well into its depths, we would take to a tree and let them whistle. Ah, but then came another sound—dogs. Yes, that was quite another matter— it magnified our contract. We must find running water. We tore along at a good gait, and soon left the sounds far behind and modified to a murmur. We struck a stream and darted into it. We waded swiftly down it, in the dim forest light, for as much as three hundred yards, and then came across an oak with a great bough sticking out of the water. We climbed up on this bough, and began to work our way along it to the body of the tree. Now we began to hear those sounds more plainly, so the mob had struck our trail. For a while the sounds approached pretty fast, and then for another while they didn't. No doubt the dogs had found the place where we had entered the stream, and were now waltzing up and down the shores trying to pick up the trail again. When we were snugly lodged in the tree and curtained with foliage, the king was satisfied, but I was doubtful. I believed we could crawl along a branch and get into the next tree, and I judged it worth while to try. We tried it, and made a success of it, though the king slipped, at the junction, and came near failing to connect. We got comfortable lodgment and satisfactory concealment among the foliage, and then we had nothing to do but listen to the hunt. Presently we heard it coming, and coming on the jump, too, yes, and down both sides of the stream. Louder! Louder! Next minute it swelled swiftly up into a roar of shoutings, barkings, tramplings, and swept by like a cyclone. "'I was afraid that the overhanging branch would suggest something to them,' said I. "'But I don't mind the disappointment. Come, my liege, it were well that we make good use of our time. We've flanked them. Dark is coming on presently. If we can cross the stream and get a good start and borrow a couple of horses from somebody's pasture to use for a few hours—' We shall be safe enough. 
we started down and got nearly to the lowest limb when we seemed to hear the hunt returning. We stopped to listen. Yes, said I, they're baffled. They've given it up, and they're on their way home. We will climb back to our roost again and let them go by. So we climbed back. The king listened a moment and said, They still search, I wit the sign. We did best to abide. He was right. He knew more about hunting than I did. The noise approached steadily, but not with a rush. The king said, They reason that we were advantaged by no parlous start of them, and being on foot are as yet no mighty way from where we took the water. Yes, sire, that is about it, I'm afraid, though I was hoping better things. The noise drew nearer and nearer, and soon the van was drifting under us on both sides of the water. A voice called a halt from the other bank and said, And they were so minded they could get to yon tree by this branch that overhangs and yet not touch ground. Ye will do well to send a man up it. Marry, that we will do. I was obliged to admire my cuteness in foreseeing this very thing and swapping trees to beat it. But, don't you know, there are some things that can beat smartness and foresight. Awkwardness and stupidity can. The best swordsman in the world doesn't need to fear the second best swordsman in the world. No, the person for him to be afraid of is some ignorant antagonist who has never had a sword in his hand before. He doesn't do the thing he ought to do, and so the expert isn't prepared for him. He does the thing he ought not to do, and often it catches the expert out and ends him on the spot. Well, how could I, with all my gifts, make any valuable preparation against a near-sighted, cross-eyed, pudding-headed clown who would aim himself at the wrong tree and hit the right one? And that is what he did. He went for the wrong tree, which was, of course, the right one by mistake, and up he started. Matters were serious now. We remained still and awaited developments. The peasant toiled his difficult way up. The king raised himself up and stood— he made a leg ready, and when the comer's head arrived in reach of it, there was a dull thud, and down went the man floundering to the ground. There was a wild outbreak of anger below, and the mob swarmed in from all around, and there we were, treed, and prisoners. Another man started up, the bridging bow was detected, and a volunteer started up the tree that furnished the bridge. The king ordered me to play Horatius, and keep the bridge. For a while the enemy came thick and fast, but no matter, the headman of each procession always got a buffet that dislodged him as soon as he came in reach. The king's spirits rose, his joy was limitless. He said that if nothing occurred to mar the prospect, we should have a beautiful night, for on this line of tactics we could hold the tree against the whole countryside. However, the mob soon came to that conclusion themselves, wherefore they called off the assault and began to debate other plans. They had no weapons, but there were plenty of stones, and stones might answer. We had no objections. A stone might possibly penetrate to us once in a while, but it wasn't very likely. We were well protected by boughs and foliage, and were not visible from any good aiming point. If they would but waste half an hour in stone-throwing, the dark would come to our help. We were feeling very well satisfied. We could smile, almost laugh, but we didn't which was just as well, for we should have been interrupted. Before the stones had been raging through the leaves and bouncing from the boughs fifteen minutes, we began to notice a smell. A couple of sniffs of it was enough of an explanation. It was smoke. Our game was up at last. We recognized that. When smoke invites you, you have to come. 
They raised their pile of dry brush and damp weeds higher and higher, and when they saw the thick cloud begin to roll up and smother the tree, they broke out in a storm of joy clamors. I got enough breath to say, Proceed, my liege, after you is manners. The king gasped. Follow me down, and then back thyself against one side of the trunk, and leave me the other. Then will we fight. Let each pile his dead according to his own fashion and taste. Then he descended, barking and coughing, and I followed. I struck the ground an instant after him. We sprang to our appointed places, and began to give and take with all our might. The powwow and racket were prodigious. It was a tempest of riot and confusion, and thick-falling blows. Suddenly some horsemen tore into the midst of the crowd, and a voice shouted, "'Hold! Or ye are dead men!' How good it sounded! The owner of the voice bore all the marks of a gentleman. Picturesque and costly raiment, the aspect of command, a hard countenance with complexion and features marred by dissipation. The mob fell humbly back, like so many spaniels. The gentleman inspected us critically, then said sharply to the peasants, "'What are ye doing to these people?' "'They be madmen, worshipful sir, that have come wandering we know not whence, and—' "'Ye know not whence? Do ye pretend ye know them not?' "'Most honoured sir, we speak but the truth. They are strangers, and unknown to any in this region, and they be the most violent and bloodthirsty madmen that ever—' "'Peace! Ye know not what ye say. They are not mad. Who are ye, and whence are ye? Explain!' "'We are but peaceful strangers, sir,' I said, "'and travelling upon our own concerns. "'We are from a far country, and unacquainted here. "'We have proposed no harm, "'and yet, but for your brave interference and protection, "'these people would have killed us. "'As you have divined, sir, we are not mad, "'neither are we violent or bloodthirsty.' "'The gentleman turned to his retinue and said calmly, "'Lash me these animals to their kennels.' The mob vanished in an instant, and after them plunged the horsemen, laying about them with their whips and pitilessly riding down such as were witless enough to keep the road instead of taking to the bush. The shrieks and supplications presently died away in the distance, and soon the horsemen began to straggle back. Meantime the gentlemen had been questioning us more closely, but had dug no particulars out of us. We were lavish of recognition of the service he was doing us but we revealed nothing more than that we were friendless strangers from a far country. When the escort were all returned, the gentleman said to one of his servants, "'Bring the lead horses, and mount these people.' "'Yes, my lord.' We were placed toward the rear among the servants. We traveled pretty fast, and finally drew rein some time after dark at a roadside inn, some ten or twelve miles from the scene of our troubles. My lord went immediately to his room, after ordering his supper, and we saw no more of him. At dawn in the morning we breakfasted and made ready to start. My lord's chief attendant sauntered forward at that moment with indolent grace, and said, "'Ye have said ye should continue upon this road, which is our direction likewise. Wherefore my lord, the Earl Grip, hath given commandment that ye retain the horses and ride, and that certain of us ride with ye a twenty-mile to a fair town that hight Cambinet, when so ye shall be out of peril. We could do nothing less than express our thanks and accept the offer. We jogged along, six in the party, at a moderate and comfortable gait, and in conversation learned that my lord Grip was a very great personage in his own region, which lay a day's journey beyond Cambinet. 
we loitered to such a degree that it was near the middle of the forenoon when we entered the market square of the town. We dismounted, left our thanks once more for my lord, and then approached a crowd assembled in the center of the square to see what might be the object of interest. It was the remnant of that old peregrinating band of slaves. So they had been dragging their chains about all this weary time. That poor husband was gone, and also many others, and some few purchases had been added to the gang. The king was not interested and wanted to move along, but I was absorbed and full of pity. I could not take my eyes away from these worn and wasted wrecks of humanity. There they sat, grounded upon the ground, silent, uncomplaining, with bowed heads, a pathetic sight. And by hideous contrast, a redundant orator was making a speech to another gathering not thirty steps away, in fulsome laudation of our glorious British liberties. I was boiling. I had forgotten I was a plebeian. I was remembering I was a man. Cost what it might, I would mount that rostrum and click. The king and I were handcuffed together. Our companions, those servants, had done it. My lord Grip stood looking on. The king burst out in fury and said, What meaneth this ill-mannered jest? My lord merely said to his head miscreant coolly, Put up the slaves and sell them. Slaves. The word had a new sound, and how unspeakably awful. The king lifted his manacles and brought them down with a deadly force, but my lord was out of the way when they arrived. A dozen of the rascal's servants sprang forward, and in a moment we were helpless, with our hands bound behind us. We so loudly and so earnestly proclaimed ourselves freemen that we got the interested attention of that liberty-mouthing orator and his patriotic crowd, and they gathered about us and assumed a very determined attitude. The orator said, "'If indeed ye are freemen, ye have naught to fear.' The God-given liberties of Britain are about ye for your shield and shelter. Applause. Ye shall soon see. Bring forth your proofs. What proofs? Proof that ye are free men. Ah, I remembered. I came to myself. I said nothing. But the king stormed out. Thou art insane, man. It were better and more in reason that this thief and scoundrel here prove that we are not free men. You see, he knew his own laws, just as other people so often know the laws, by words, not by effects. They take a meaning, and get to be very vivid when you come to apply them to yourself. All hands shook their heads and looked disappointed. Some turned away, no longer interested. The orator said, and this time in the tones of business, not of sentiment, "'And ye do not know your country's laws. It were time ye learned them.' Ye are strangers to us, ye will not deny that. Ye be free men, we do not deny that. But also ye may be slaves, the law is clear, it doth not require the claimant to prove ye are slaves, it requireth you to prove ye are not. I said, Dear sir, give us only time to send to Astolat, or give us only time to send to the Valley of Holiness. Peace, good man, these are extraordinary requests and you may not hope to have them granted. It would cost much time, and would unwarrantly inconvenience your master. Master, idiot, stormed the king. I have no master. I myself am the m Silence, for God's sake. I got the words out in time to stop the king. We were in trouble enough already. It 
could not help us any to give these people the notion that we were lunatics. There is no use in stringing out the details. The Earl put us up and sold us at auction. This same infernal law had existed in our own South in my own time, more than thirteen hundred years later, and under it hundreds of free men, who could not prove that they were free men, had been sold into lifelong slavery without the circumstance making any particular impression upon me. But the minute law and the auction block came into my personal experience, a thing which had been merely improper before, became suddenly hellish. Well, that's the way we are made. Yes, we were sold at auction like swine. In a big town and an active market, we should have brought a good price. But this place was utterly stagnant, and so we sold at a figure which makes me ashamed every time I think of it. The King of England brought seven dollars, and his Prime Minister nine, whereas the King was easily worth twelve dollars, and I, as easily, worth fifteen. But that is the way things always go. If you force a sale in a dull market, I don't care what the property is, you are going to make a poor business of it, and you can make up your mind to it. If the Earl had had wit enough to— However, there is no occasion for my working my sympathies up on his account. Let him go for the present. I took his number, so to speak. The slave dealer bought us both, and hitched us on to the long chain of his, and we constituted the rear of his procession. We took up our line of march, and passed out of Cambonet at noon, and it seemed to me unaccountably strange and odd that the King of England and his chief minister, marching manacled and fettered and yoked in a slave convoy, could move by all manner of idle men and women, and under windows where sat the sweet and the lovely, and yet never attract a curious eye, never provoke a single remark. Dear, dear, it only shows that there is nothing diviner about a king than there is about a tramp, after all. He is just a cheap and hollow artificiality when you don't know he is a king, but reveal his quality, and dear me, it takes your very breath away to look at him. I reckon we are all fools. Born so, no doubt. End of chapter 34 Chapter 35 A Pitiful Incident It's a world of surprises. The king brooded. This was natural. But what would he brood about, should you say? Why, about the prodigious nature of his fall, of course, from the loftiest place in the world to the lowest, from the most illustrious station in the world to the obscurest, from the grandest vocation among men to the basest. No, I take my oath that the thing that graveled him most, to start with, was not this, but the price he had fetched. He couldn't seem to get over that seven dollars. Well, it stunned me so, when I first found it out, that I couldn't believe it. It didn't seem natural. But as soon as my mental sight cleared, and I got a right focus on it, I saw I was mistaken. It was natural. For this reason, a king is a mere artificiality, and so a king's feelings, like the impulses of an automatic doll, are mere artificialities. But as a man, he is a reality— and his feelings, as a man, are real, not phantoms. It shames the average man to be valued below his own estimate of his worth, and the king certainly wasn't anything more than an average man, if he was up that high. 
confound him he wearied me with arguments to show that in anything like a fair market he would have fetched twenty-five dollars sure a thing which was plainly nonsense and full of the baldest conceit i wasn't worth it myself but it was tender ground for me to argue on and in fact i had to simply shirk argument and do the diplomatic instead i had to throw conscience aside and brazenly concede that he ought to have brought twenty-five dollars whereas I was quite well aware that in all the ages the world had never seen a king that was worth half the money, and during the next thirteen centuries wouldn't see one that was worth a fourth of it. Yes, he tired me. If he began to talk about the crops, or about the recent weather, or about the condition of politics, or about dogs, or cats, or morals, or theology, no matter what, I sighed, for I knew what was coming. He was going to get out of it a palliation of that tiresome seven-dollar sale. Wherever we halted, where there was a crowd, he would give a look which said plainly, If that thing could be tried over again now with this kind of folk, you would see a different result. Well, when he was first sold, it secretly tickled me to see him go for seven dollars. But before he was done with his sweating and worrying, I wished he had fetched a hundred. The thing never got a chance to die for every day, at one place or another, possible purchasers looked us over, and, as often as any other way, their comment on the king was something like this. "'Here's a two-dollar-and-a-half chump with a thirty-dollar style. Pity but style was marketable.' At last this sort of remark produced an evil result. Our owner was a practical person, and he perceived that this defect must be mended if he hoped to find a purchaser for the king, so he went to work to take the style out of his sacred majesty. I could have given the man some valuable advice, but I didn't. You mustn't volunteer advice to a slave-driver unless you want to damage the cause you are arguing for. I had found it a sufficiently difficult job to reduce the king's style to a peasant's style, even when he was a willing and anxious pupil— now, then, to undertake to reduce the king's style to a slave's style, and by force, <laughs> go to. It was a stately contract. Never mind the details, it will save me trouble to let you imagine them. I will only remark that, at the end of a week, there was plenty of evidence that lash and club and fist had done their work well. The king's body was a sight to see, and to weep over. But his spirit? Why, it wasn't even phased." Even that dull clod of a slave-driver was able to see that there can be such a thing as a slave who will remain a man till he dies, whose bones you can break, but whose manhood you can't. This man found that from his first effort down to his latest he couldn't ever come within reach of the king, but the king was ready to plunge for him and did it. So he gave up at last, and left the king in possession of his style unimpaired. The fact is, the king was a good deal more than a king, he was a man. And when a man is a man, you can't knock it out of him. We had a rough time for a month, tramping to and fro in the earth, and suffering. And what English man was the most interested in the slavery question by that time? His grace the king. Yes, from being the most indifferent, he was become the most interested— he was become the bitterest hater of the institution I had ever heard talk. And so I ventured to ask once more a question which I had asked years before, and had gotten such a sharp answer that I had not thought it prudent to meddle in the matter further. Would he abolish slavery? 
His answer was as sharp as before. But it was music this time. I shouldn't ever wish to hear pleasanter, though the profanity was not good, being awkwardly put together, and with the crash word almost in the middle instead of at the end, where, of course, it ought to have been. I was ready and willing to get free now. I hadn't wanted to get free any sooner. No, I cannot quite say that. I had wanted to, but had not been willing to take desperate chances, and had always dissuaded the king from them. But now, ah, it was a new atmosphere. Liberty would be worth any cost that might be put upon it now. I set about a plan, and was straightway charmed with it. It would require time, yes, and patience, too, a great deal of both. One could invent quicker ways, and fully as sure ones, but none that would be as picturesque as this, none that could be made so dramatic. And so I was not going to give this one up. It might delay us months, but no matter, I would carry it out or break something. Now and then we had an adventure. One night we were overtaken by a snowstorm while still a mile from the village we were making for. Almost instantly we were shut up as in a fog the driving snow was so thick. You couldn't see a thing, and we were soon lost. The slave driver lashed us desperately, for he saw ruin before him, but his lashings only made matters worse, for they drove us further from the road and from likelihood of succor. So we had to stop at last and slump down in the snow where we were. The storm continued until toward midnight, then ceased. By this time two of our feebler men and three of our women were dead, and others passed moving and threatened with death. Our master was nearly beside himself. He stirred up the living and made us stand, jump, slap ourselves to restore our circulation, and he helped as well as he could with his whip. Now came a diversion. We heard shrieks and yells, and soon a woman came running and crying, and seeing our group she flung herself into our midst and begged for protection. A mob of people came tearing after her, some with torches, and they said she was a witch who had caused several cows to die by a strange disease, and practiced her arts by help of a devil in the form of a black cat. This poor woman had been stoned until she hardly looked human. She was so battered and bloody. The mob wanted to burn her. Well, now, what do you suppose our master did? When we closed around this poor creature to shelter her, he saw his chance. He said, burn her here, or they shouldn't have her at all. Imagine that. They were willing. They fastened her to a post. They brought wood and piled it about her. They applied the torch while she shrieked and pleaded and strained her two young daughters to her breast. And our brute, with a heart solely for business, lashed us into position about the stake and warmed us into life and commercial value by the same fire which took away the innocent life of that poor, harmless mother. That was the sort of master we had. I took his number. That snowstorm cost him nine of his flock, and he was more brutal to us than ever after that for many days together. He was so enraged over his loss. We had adventures all along. One day we ran into a procession, and such a procession. All the riffraff of the kingdom seemed to be comprehended in it, and all drunk at that. In the van was a cart with a coffin in it and on the coffin sat a comely young girl of about eighteen, suckling a baby, which she squeezed to her breast in a passion of love every little while, and every little while wiped from its face the tears which her eyes rained down upon it, and always the foolish little thing smiled up at her, happy and content, kneading her breast with its dimpled fat hand, 
which she patted and fondled right over her breaking heart. Men and women, boys and girls, trotted along beside or after the cart, hooting and shouting profane and ribald remarks, singing snatches of foul song, skipping, dancing, a very holiday of hellions, a sickening sight. We had struck a suburb of London, outside the walls, and this was a sample of one sort of London society. Our master secured a good place for us near the gallows. A priest was in attendance, and he helped the girl climb up, and said comforting words to her, and made the undersheriff provide a stool for her. Then he stood there by her on the gallows, and for a moment looked down upon the mass of upturned faces at his feet, then out over the solid pavement of heads that stretched away on every side, occupying the vacancies far and near, and then began to tell the story of the case. And there was pity in his voice. How seldom a sound that was in that ignorant and savage land! I remember every detail of what he said, except the words he said it in, and so I change it into my own words. Law is intended to mete out justice. Sometimes it fails. This cannot be helped. We can only grieve and be resigned and pray for the soul of him who falls unfairly by the arm of the law, and that his fellows may be few. A law sends this poor young thing to death, and it is right. But another law had placed her where she must commit her crime or starve with her child, and before God that law is responsible for both her crime and her ignominious death. A little while ago this young thing, this child of eighteen years, was as happy a wife and mother as any in England, and her lips were blithe with song, which is the native speech of glad and innocent hearts. Her young husband was as happy as she, for he was doing his whole duty. He worked early and late at his handicraft. His bread was honest bread, well and fairly earned. He was prospering. He was furnishing shelter and sustenance to his family. He was adding his might to the wealth of the nation." By consent of a treacherous law, instant destruction fell upon his holy home and swept it away. That young husband was waylaid and impressed and sent to sea. The wife knew nothing of it. She sought him everywhere. She moved the hardest hearts with the supplications of her tears, the broken eloquence of her despair. Weeks dragged by, she watching, waiting, hoping, her mind going slowly to wreck under the burden of her misery. Little by little all her small possessions went for food. When she could no longer pay her rent, they turned her out of doors. She begged while she had strength. When she was starving at last and her milk failing, she stole a piece of linen cloth of the value of a fourth part of a cent, thinking to sell it and save her child. But she was seen by the owner of the cloth. She was put in jail and brought to trial. The man testified to the facts. A plea was made for her, and her sorrowful story was told in her behalf. She spoke, too, by permission, and said she did steal the cloth, but that her mind was so disordered of late by trouble that, when she was overborne with hunger, all acts, criminal or other, swam meaningless through her brain, and she knew nothing rightly except that she was so hungry. For a moment all were touched, and there was disposition to deal mercifully with her, seeing that she was so young and friendless, and her case so piteous, and the law that robbed her of her support to blame as being the first and only cause of her transgression. But the prosecuting officer replied that whereas these things were all true, and most pitiful as well, 
Still, there was much small theft in these days, and mistimed mercy here would be a danger to property. Oh, my God, is there no property in ruined homes and orphaned babes and broken hearts that British law holds precious? And so he must require sentence. When the judge put on his black cap, the owner of the stolen linen rose trembling up, his lip quivering, his face as gray as ashes, and when the awful words came, he cried out, "'Oh, poor child, poor child, I did not know it was death!' and fell as a tree falls. When they lifted him up, his reason was gone. Before the sun was set, he had taken his own life. A kindly man, a man whose heart was right at bottom— add his murder to this that is to be now done here, and charge them both where they belong, to the rulers and the bitter laws of Britain. The time is come, my child. Let me pray over thee, not for thee, dear abused poor heart and innocent, but for them that be guilty of thy ruin and death, who needed more. After his prayer they put the noose around the young girl's neck, and they had great trouble to adjust the knot under her ear, because she was devouring the baby all the time, wildly kissing it, and snatching it to her face and her breast, and drenching it with tears, and half moaning, half shrieking all the while, and the baby crowing and laughing, and kicking its feet with delight over what it took for romp and play. Even the hangman couldn't stand it, but turned away. When all was ready, the priest gently pulled and tugged, and forced the child out of the mother's arms, and stepped quickly out of her reach, but she clasped her hands and made a wild spring toward him with a shriek, but the rope and the under-sheriff held her short. Then she went on her knees and stretched out her hands and cried, "'One more kiss! Oh, my God, one more, one more! It is the dying that begs it!' She got it. She almost smothered the little thing." and when they got it away again she cried out, "'Oh, my child, my darling, it will die! It has no home, it has no father, no friend, no mother!' "'It has them all,' said the good priest. "'All these will I be to it, till I die.' You should have seen her face then. Gratitude? Lord, what do you want with words to express that? Words are only painted fire, a look." is the fire itself. She gave that look and carried it away to the treasury of heaven, where all things that are divine belong. End of chapter 35 Chapter 36 An Encounter in the Dark London, to a slave, was a sufficiently interesting place. It was merely a great big village, and mainly mud and thatch. The streets were muddy, crooked, unpaved. The populace was an ever-flocking and drifting swarm of rags and splendors, of nodding plumes and shining armor. The king had a palace there. He saw the outside of it. It made him sigh, yes, and swear a little, in a poor, juvenile, sixth-century way. We saw knights and grandees whom we knew, but they didn't know us in our rags and dirt and raw welts and bruises, and wouldn't have recognized us if we had hailed them, nor stopped to answer either, it being unlawful to speak with slaves on a chain. Sandy passed within ten yards of me on a mule, hunting for me, I imagined. But the thing which clean broke my heart was something which happened in front of our old barrack in a square, 
while we were enduring the spectacle of a man being boiled to death in oil for counterfeiting pennies. It was the sight of a newsboy, and I couldn't get at him. Still, I had one comfort. Here was proof that Clarence was still alive and banging away. I meant to be with him before long. The thought was full of cheer. I had one little glimpse of another thing one day which gave me a great uplift. It was a wire stretching from housetop to housetop, telegraph or telephone, sure. I did very much wish I had a little piece of it. It was just what I needed in order to carry out my project of escape. My idea was to get loose some night, along with the king, then gag and bind our master, change clothes with him, batter him into the aspect of a stranger, hitch him to the slave-chain, assume possession of the property, march to Camelot, and—but uh, you get my idea. You see what a stunning dramatic surprise I would wind up with at the palace. It was all feasible, if I could only get hold of a slender piece of iron which I could shape into a lock-pick. I could then undo the lumbering padlocks with which our chains were fastened, whenever I might choose. But I never had any luck. No such thing ever happened to fall in my way. However, my chance came at last. A gentleman who had come twice before to dicker for me without result, or indeed any approach to a result, came again. I was far from expecting ever to belong to him, for the price asked for me from the time I was first enslaved was exorbitant, and always provoked either anger or derision, yet my master stuck stubbornly to it. Twenty-two dollars. He wouldn't bait a cent. The king was greatly admired because of his grand physique, but his kingly style was against him, and he wasn't saleable. Nobody wanted that kind of a slave. I considered myself safe from parting from him because of my extravagant price. No, I was not expecting to ever belong to this gentleman whom I have spoken of, but he had something which I expected would belong to me eventually, if he would but visit us often enough. It was a steel thing with a long pin to it, with which his long cloth outside garment was fastened together in front. There were three of them. He had disappointed me twice, because he did not come quite close enough to me to make my project entirely safe, but this time I succeeded. I captured the lower clasp of the three, and when he missed it he thought he had lost it on the way. I had a chance to be glad about a minute, then straightway a chance to be sad again, for when the purchase was about to fail, as usual, the master suddenly spoke up and said what would be worded thus in modern English, "'Tell you what I'll do.' I'm tired supporting these two for no good. Give me twenty-two dollars for this one, and I'll throw the other one in. The king couldn't get his breath. He was in such a fury. He began to choke and gag, and meantime the master and the gentleman moved away, discussing. And ye will keep the offer open. Tis open till morrow at this hour. Then I will answer you at that time, said the gentleman, and disappeared, the master following him. I had a time of it to cool the king down, but I managed it. I whispered in his ear to this effect, "'Your grace will go for nothing but after another fashion, and so shall I. Tonight we shall both be free.' "'Ah, how is that? With this thing which I have stolen, I will unlock these locks and cast off these chains tonight. When he comes about nine-thirty to inspect us for the night, we will seize him, gag him, batter him, and early in the morning we will march out of this town, proprietors of this caravan of slaves. That was as far as I went, but the king was charmed and satisfied. 
That evening we waited patiently for our fellow-slaves to get to sleep, and signify it by the usual sign, for you must not take many chances on those poor fellows if you can avoid it. It is best to keep your own secrets. No doubt they fidgeted only about as usual, but it didn't seem so to me. It seemed to me that they were going to be forever getting down to their regular snoring. As the time dragged on, I got nervously afraid we shouldn't have enough of it left for our needs. So I made several premature attempts, and merely delayed things by it, for I couldn't seem to touch a padlock there in the dark without starting a rattle out of it, which interrupted somebody's sleep and made him turn over and wake some more of the gang. But finally I did get my last iron off, and was a free man once more. I took a good breath of relief and reached for the king's irons. Too late, in comes the master, with a light in one hand and his heavy walking-staff in the other. I snuggled close among the wallow of snorers to conceal as nearly as possible that I was naked of irons, and I kept a sharp lookout and prepared to spring for my man the moment he should bend over me. But he didn't approach. He stopped, gazed absently toward our dusky mass a minute, evidently thinking about something else, then set down his light, moved musingly toward the door, and before a body could imagine what he was going to do, he was out of the door and had closed it behind him. "'Quick!' said the king. "'Fetch him back!' Of course, it was the thing to do, and I was up and out in a moment. But, dear me, there were no lamps in those days, and it was a dark night. But I glimpsed a dim figure a few steps away. I darted for it, threw myself upon it, and then there was a state of things, and lively. We fought and scuffled and struggled and drew a crowd in no time. They took an immense interest in the fight, and encouraged us all they could, and, in fact, couldn't have been pleasanter or more cordial if it had been their own fight. Then a tremendous row broke out behind us, and as much as half of our audience left us, with a rush, to invest some sympathy in that. Lanterns began to swing in all directions. It was the watch, gathering from far and near. Presently a halbert fell across my back, as a reminder, and I knew what it meant. I was in custody. So was my adversary. We were marched off toward prison, one on each side of the watchman. Here was disaster. Here was a fine scheme gone to sudden destruction. I tried to imagine what would happen when the master should discover that it was I who had been fighting him, and what would happen if they jailed us together in the general apartment for brawlers and petty lawbreakers, as was the custom, and what might— just then my antagonist turned his face around in my direction. The freckled light from the watchman's tin lantern fell on it, and, by George, it was the wrong man! End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 An Awful Predicament Sleep? It was impossible. It would naturally have been impossible in that noisome cavern of a jail, with its mangy crowd of drunken, quarrelsome, and song-singing rapscallions, but the thing that made sleep all the more a thing not to be dreamed of was my racking impatience to get out of this place and find out the whole size of what might have happened yonder in the slave quarters in consequence of that intolerable miscarriage of mine. It was a long night, but the morning got around at last. I made a full and frank explanation to the court. I said I was a slave, the property of the great Earl Grip who had arrived just after dark at the Tabard Inn in the village on the other side of the water, and had stopped there overnight by compulsion, he being taken deadly sick with a strange and sudden disorder. 
I had been ordered to cross to the city in all haste and bring the best physician. I was doing my best. Naturally, I was running with all my might. The night was dark. I ran against this common person here who seized me by the throat and began to pummel me. Although I told him my errand and implored him for the sake of the great earl, my master's mortal peril, the common person interrupted and said it was a lie, and was going to explain how I rushed upon him and attacked him without a word. Silence, sirrah, from the court. Take him hence, and give him a few stripes whereby to teach him how to treat the servant of a nobleman after a different fashion another time. Go! Then the court begged my pardon, and hoped I would not fail to tell his lordship it was in no wise the court's fault that this high-handed thing had happened. I said I would make it all right, and so took my leave. Took it just in time, too. He was starting to ask me why I didn't fetch out these facts the moment I was arrested. I said I would if I had thought of it, which was true, but that I was so battered by that man that all my wit was knocked out of me, and so forth and so on, and, and I got myself away, still mumbling. I didn't wait for breakfast. No grass grew under my feet. I was soon at the slave quarters. Empty. Everybody gone. That is, everybody except one body, the slave masters. It lay there all battered to pulp, and all about were the evidences of a terrific fight. There was a rude board coffin on a cart at the door, and workmen, assisted by the police, were thinning a road through the gaping crowd in order that they might bring it in. I picked out a man humble enough in life to condescend to talk with one so shabby as I, and got his account of the matter. There were sixteen slaves here. They rose against their master in the night, and thou seest how it ended. Yes, and how did it begin? There is no witness but the slaves. They said the slave that was most valuable got free of his bonds and escaped in some strange way, by magic arts, t'was thought, by reason that he had no key, and the locks were neither broke nor in any wise injured. When the master discovered his loss, he was mad with despair, and threw himself upon his people with his heavy stick, who resisted and brake his back, and in other and diverse ways did give him hurts that brought him swiftly to his end. Well, this is dreadful. It will go hard with the slaves, no doubt, upon the trial. Mary, the trial is over. Over? Would they be a, a week, think you, and the matter so simple? They were not the half a quarter of an hour at it. Why, I don't see how they could determine which were the guilty ones in so short a time. Which ones? Indeed, they considered not particulars like to that. They condemned them in a body. Which ye not the law? which men say the Romans left behind them here when they went, that if one slave killeth his master, all the slaves of that man must die for it. True, I had forgotten. And when will these die? Be like within a four and twenty hours, albeit some say they will wait a pair of days more, if peradventure they may find the missing one meantime. The missing one. It made me feel uncomfortable. Is it likely they will find him? Before the day is spent, yes. They seek him everywhere. They stand at the gates of the town with certain of the slaves who will discover him to them if he cometh, and none can pass out, but he will be first examined. Might one see the place where the rest are confined? The outside of it, yes. The inside of it, but he will not want to see that. I took the address of that prison for future reference, and then sauntered off. At the first second-hand clothing shop I came to, up a back street, I got a rough rig suitable for a common seaman who might be going on a cold voyage, 
and bound up my face with a liberal bandage, saying I had a toothache. This concealed my worst bruises. It was a transformation. I no longer resembled my former self. Then I struck out for that wire, found it, and followed it to its den. It was a little room over a butcher's shop, which meant that business wasn't very brisk in the telegraphic line. The young chap in charge was drowsing at his table. I locked the door and put the vast key in my bosom. This alarmed the young fellow, and he was going to make a noise, but I said, "'Save your wind. If you open your mouth, you are dead, sure. Tackle your instrument. Lively now. Call Camelot.' "'This doth amaze me. How should such as you know aught of such matters as call Camelot?' I am a desperate man. Call Camelot, or get away from the instrument, and I will do it myself. What? You? Yes, certainly. Stop gabbling. Call the palace. He made the call. Now then, call Clarence. Clarence who? Never mind Clarence who. Say you want Clarence. You'll get an answer. He did so. We waited five nerve-straining minutes, ten minutes. How long it did seem— and then came a click that was as familiar to me as a human voice, for Clarence had been my own pupil. Now, my lad, vacate. They would have known my touch, maybe, and so your call was surest, but I'm all right now. He vacated the place and cocked his ear to listen, but it didn't win. I used a cipher. I didn't waste any time in sociabilities with Clarence, but squared away for business, straight off, thus. The king is here and in danger. We were captured and brought here as slaves. We should not be able to prove our identity, and the fact is I am not in a position to try. Send a telegram for the palace here, which will carry conviction with it. His answer came straight away. They don't know anything about the telegraph. They haven't had any experience yet. The line to London is so new. Better not venture that. They might hang you. Think up something else. Might hang us. Little he knew how closely he was crowding the facts. I couldn't think up anything for the moment. Then an idea struck me, and I started it along. Send five hundred picked knights with Lancelot in the lead, and send them on the jump. Let them enter by the southwest gate, and look out for the man with a white cloth around his right arm. The answer was prompt. They shall start in half an hour. All right, Clarence. Now tell this lad here that I am a friend of yours, and a deadhead, and that he must be discreet, and say nothing about this visit of mine. The instrument began to talk to the youth, and I hurried away. I fell to ciphering. In half an hour it would be nine o'clock. Knights and horses in heavy armor couldn't travel very fast. These would make the best time they could, and now that the ground was in good condition, and no snow or mud, they would probably make a seven-mile gate. They would have to change horses a couple of times. They would arrive about six or a little after. It would still be plenty light enough. They would see the white cloth, which I should tie around my right arm, and I would take command. We would surround that prison and have the king out in no time. It would be showy and picturesque enough, all things considered, though I would have preferred noonday on account of the more theatrical aspect the thing would have. Now then, in order to increase the strings to my bow— I thought I would look up some of those people whom I had formerly recognized and make myself known. That would help us out of our escape, without the knights. But I must proceed cautiously, for it was a risky business. I must get into sumptuous raiment, and it wouldn't do to run and jump into it. No, I must work up to it by degrees, 
buying suit after suit of clothes in shops wide apart, and getting a little finer article with each change, until I should finally reach silk and velvet, and be ready for my project. So I started. But the scheme fell through like scat. The first corner I turned, I came plump upon one of our slaves snooping around with a watchman. I coughed at the moment, and he gave me a sudden look that bit right into my marrow. I judge he thought he had heard that cough before. I turned immediately into a shop and worked along down the counter, pricing things and watching out of the corner of my eye. Those people had stopped and were talking together and looking in at the door. I made up my mind to get out the back way, if there was a back way, and I asked the shopwoman if I could step out there and look for the escaped slave who was believed to be in hiding back there somewhere, and said I was an officer in disguise, and my pard was yonder at the door with one of the murderers in charge, and would she be good enough to step there and tell him he needn't wait, but had better go at once to the further end of the back alley and be ready to head him off when I rousted him out. She was blazing with eagerness to see one of those already celebrated murderers, and she started on the errand at once. I slipped out the back way, locked the door behind me, put the key in my pocket, and started off, chuckling to myself, and comfortable. Well, I had gone and spoiled it again, made another mistake, a double one, in fact. There were plenty of ways to get rid of that officer by some simple and plausible device, but no, I must pick out a picturesque one. It is the crying defect of my character— and then I had ordered my procedure upon what the officer, being human, would naturally do. Whereas, when you are least expecting it, a man will now and then go and do the very thing which it's not natural for him to do. The natural thing for the officer to do in this case was to follow straight on my heels. He would find a stout oaken door securely locked between him and me. Before he could break it down, I should be far away and engaged in slipping into a succession of baffling disguises, which would soon get me into a sort of raiment, which was a surer protection from meddling law-dogs in Britain than any amount of mere innocence and purity of character. But instead of doing the natural thing, the officer took me at my word and followed my instructions. And so, as I came trotting out of that cul-de-sac full of satisfaction with my own cleverness— he turned the corner, and I walked right into his handcuffs. If I had known it was a cul-de-sac, however, there isn't any excusing a blunder like that. Let it go. Charge it up to profit and loss. Of course, I was indignant, and swore I had just come ashore from a long voyage and all that sort of thing, just to see, you know, if it would deceive that slave. But it didn't. He knew me. Then I reproached him for betraying me. He was more surprised than hurt. He stretched his eyes wide and said— "'What? Wouldst have me let thee of all men escape and not hang with us, when thou'rt the very cause of our hanging? Go to!' "'Go to!' was their way of saying, "'I should smile,' or, "'I like that.' Queer talkers, those people. Well, there was a sort of bastard justice in his view of the case, and so I dropped the matter. When you can't cure a disaster by argument, what is the use to argue? It isn't my way. So I only said— "'You're not going to be hanged. None of us are.' Both men laughed, and the slave said, "'Ye have not ranked as a fool before. You might better keep your reputation, seeing the strain would not be for long. It will stand it, I reckon. Before tomorrow we shall be out of prison, and free to go where we will, besides.' The witty officer lifted at his left ear with his thumb, made a rasping noise in his throat, and said, "'Out of prison, yes, ye say true.' 
and free likewise to go where ye will, so ye wander not out of his grace, the devil's sultry realm. I kept my temper and said indifferently, Now I suppose you really think we are going to hang within a day or two. I thought it not many minutes ago, for so the thing was decided and proclaimed. Ah, then you've changed your mind, is that it? Even that, I only thought, then, I know, now. I felt sarcastical, so I said, Oh, sapient servant of the law, condescend to tell us, then, what you know, that ye will all be hanged to-day, at mid-afternoon. Oh, that shot hit home. Uh, lean upon me. The fact is, I did need to lean upon somebody. My knights couldn't arrive in time. They would be as much as three hours too late. Nothing in the world could save the King of England, nor me, which was more important. More important not merely to me, but to the nation, the only nation on earth standing ready to blossom into civilization. I was sick. I said no more. There wasn't anything to say. I knew what the man meant, that if the missing slave was found, the postponement would be revoked, the execution take place today. Well, the missing slave was found. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 Sir Lancelot and Knights to the Rescue Nearing four in the afternoon, the scene was just outside the walls of London, a cool, comfortable, superb day with a brilliant sun, the kind of day to make one want to live, not die. The multitude was prodigious and far-reaching, and yet we fifteen poor devils hadn't a friend in it. There was something painful in that thought, look at it how you might. There we sat, on our tall scaffold, the butt of the hate and mockery of all those enemies. We were being made a holiday spectacle. They had built a sort of grandstand for the nobility and gentry, and these were there in full force with their ladies. We recognized a good many of them. The crowd got a brief and unexpected dash of diversion out of the king. The moment we were freed of our bonds, he sprang up in his fantastic rags, with face bruised out of all recognition, and proclaimed himself Arthur, King of Britain, and denounced the awful penalties of treason upon every soul there present if hair of his sacred head were touched. It startled and surprised him to hear them break into a vast roar of laughter. It wounded his dignity, and he locked himself up in silence. Then, although the crowd begged him to go on, and tried to provoke him to it, by catcalls, jeers, and shouts of, "'Let him speak! The king! The king! His humble subjects hunger and thirst for words of wisdom out of the mouth of their master, his serene and sacred raggedness!' But it went for nothing. He put on all his majesty, and sat under this reign of contempt and insult unmoved. He certainly was great in his way— Absently I had taken off my white bandage and wound it about my right arm. When the crowd noticed this, they began upon me. They said, "'Doubtless this sailor-man is his minister. Observe his costly badge of office.' I let them go on until they got tired, and then I said, "'Yes, I am his minister, the boss, and tomorrow you will hear that from Camelot,' which—I got no further. They drowned me out with joyous derision." But presently there was silence, for the sheriffs of London, in their official robes with their subordinates, began to make a stir which indicated that business was about to begin. In the hush which followed, our crime was recited, the death warrant read, then everybody uncovered while a priest uttered a prayer. 
Then a slave was blindfolded, the hangman unslung his rope, there lay the smooth road below us, we upon one side of it, the banked multitude wailing its other side, a good clear road, and kept free by the police. How good it would be to see my five hundred horsemen come tearing down it! But no, it was out of the possibilities. I followed its receding thread out into the distance, not a horseman on it, or sign of one. There was a jerk, and the slave hung dangling, dangling and hideously squirming, for his limbs were not tied. A second rope was unslung. In a moment another slave was dangling. In a minute a third slave was struggling in the air. It was dreadful. I turned away my head a moment, and when I turned back I missed the king. They were blindfolding him. I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. I was choking. My tongue was petrified. They finished blindfolding him. They led him under the rope. I couldn't shake off that clinging impotence. But when I saw them put the noose around his neck, then everything let go in me, and I made a spring to the rescue. And as I made it, I shot one more glance abroad. By George, here they came, a-tilting. Five hundred mailed and belted knights on bicycles. The grandest sight that ever was seen. Lord, how the plumes streamed, how the sun flamed and flashed from the endless procession of webby wheels. I waved my right arm as Lancelot swept in. He recognized my rag. I tore away noose and bandage and shouted, On your knees, every rascal of you, and salute the king, who fails, shall sup in hell to-night. I always use that high style when I'm climaxing in effect. Well, it was noble to see Lancelot and the boys swarm up onto that scaffold and heave the sheriffs and such overboard, and it was fine to see that astonished multitude go down on their knees and beg their lives of the king they had just been deriding and insulting. And as he stood apart there, receiving this homage in rags, I thought to myself, well, really there is something peculiarly grand about the gait and bearing of a king after all. I was immensely satisfied. Take the whole situation all round, it was one of the gaudiest effects I ever instigated. And presently up comes Clarence, his own self, and winks and says, very modernly, "'Good deal of a surprise, wasn't it? I knew you'd like it. I've had the boys practicing this long time privately, and just hungry for a chance to show off.'" End of chapter 38 and there's your deus ex machina, your gods from the machines, sweeping in <laughs> on bicycles. You may have seen a picture of that, uh, that particular scene from the book. In fact, I'll try and dig one up and put it on the show notes. I know they are out there. So, that's going to pretty much be the end of The Ridiculous Silly. Now, Josie, our, our fellow podcaster from Cardiff, she recommended that I do a little language analysis thing at the end of some chapters. And I'm not going to do that today because, obviously, this was a very long podcast. But I really wanted to get through that super huge chunk of story. And, uh, and, and so I did. And there it is. But I will, I will work up some analysis of Twain's language. I'm going to listen and find a good part in, uh, in the next couple of chapters, and then I'll, I'll uh, take Josie's recommendation and, and do a little um, linguistic study at the end of the next episode. 
I did want to remind you that there is now a link to the travel logs. These are the uh, little videos, the video podcasts that I've done of the trip to England. And that way you can see a little bit of what we saw. I'll be announcing the next trip very soon. We actually made some really spectacular changes to it that I think you'll be pleased with. So uh, Diane is working furiously to get that done. And I am working furiously on my Madame Defarge shawl. It is designed, it is being knitted, it is coming along quite nicely. And, uh, and as of today, we have 22 stunning patterns knit and crochet, and a couple of extra surprises that will be going into the What Would Madame Defarge Knit book, which will be coming out on February 7th, I think, Dickens' birthday in 2011. So very excited about that. I'm going to get back to knitting my little fingers off. And uh, I think that's it. I hope you have a great week. I hope I do too. And I will talk to you on the flip side next week with some language info for you about Mark Twain. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the fall issue at www.knitcircus.com and Scribe Tutor, the online writing tutor offering personalized and convenient writing help for all ages. You can find more about Scribe Tutor at scribetutor.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com. Craftlet can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one.